0: Today's sermon comes from Isaiah 44, 8b to 23. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock, I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. The iron smith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak tree and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat, he roasts it, and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and I shall make the rest of it an abomination, shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say... Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant, O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heaven, for the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel.
1: There's this great short animated film called Gone Nutty that plays before the movie Ice Age. And it's the little film of this neurotic, prehistoric squirrel named Scrat who is taking the last acorn that he's found and storing it before the ice age arrives. And so he, he gets the acorn and he comes into his lair, which is this great hollowed out tree. And it is just full, it is a treasure full of acorns. And he climbs to the top of it and he takes this acorn and he wedges it down in the middle of the pile. And he looks really happy and pleased. He walks away and then the acorn pops out. So he turns around, he takes the acorn, he pops it back in the middle of the pile walks away, and then the acorn pops out again, and now he's really frustrated. So he gets on top of the pile, and he starts jumping up and down on this acorn to get it to go back where it belongs, and this causes an explosion inside this tree. Acorns go everywhere. Scrat is falling. Everything starts going down this gorge uh, of ice, and and as he's falling— you know, presumably maybe to his death, but he's falling, he's gathering acorns. Like he's pulling them all back together. And he lands on the icy floor. And then there's one last acorn falling, about to fall on top of him. Moves out of the way and it hits the ice. And then that triggers this uh, intercontinental divide. (laughs) And Scrat, finally, after all the dust settles, he finds himself on this icy plateau all by himself and he sees there's one last acorn in the ice. And so he reaches over to grab it, and when he grabs it, it disintegrates into ashes. It's this amazing little short story that communicates a very powerful truth. And that is, it, 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 it pictures, it, it, it plays out for us the frustration and the weariness and the fatigue and even the despair of what happens when we want something so badly. When something becomes way too important for us and we chase it and we chase it and we chase it and we can never get it. And if we finally do get our hands on it, it disintegrates into ashes. It's a picture of what the Bible calls idolatry if I could only have blank, if I could only achieve blank, if I could only experience blank, I would be happy. Now, whatever you fill in that blank with would be an idol. It's a, it's a God-like substitute. It's something or someone that you look to for satisfaction that only God can bring. And what we learn in this passage is that God's people were struggling deeply with idols. They were chasing them. And it was producing this weariness, which is what idolatry does. So the question becomes, why? Why does idolatry In our lives, produce so much weariness, so much despair, so much disappointment, so much frustration. First, we're going to see because idolatry is—it's absurd. I'm using a strong word there, Uh, and and I do that purposefully. That idolatry is—it's absurdity, and I think that's what this passage is laying out—that it's absurd. And you might ask the question, if, if it's so absurd, why do, we, why do we struggle with it? I mean, why is it even an issue? Why do God's people struggle with it? Well, I want you to notice what this person does in this passage. So he chops a tree down and uses part of the wood to build a fire for himself, to warm himself. And then he uses part of the wood to build a fire to bake bread, to make a meal. So so far, so good, right? Some wood to burn a fire, to, to be comfortable, to be warm, great. Some wood to build a fire, to bake bread, to make a meal, great, right? Here, this wood is providing for this man's needs. It's satisfying his hunger. It's satisfying his need for comfort, for warmth. All good so far. In fact, verse 16 says it. Half of it he burns in the fire, Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. Physical hunger satisfied, physical need for comfort satisfied by the warmth. This is a man who has just eaten a great, just think about it, great Thanksgiving meal. He's full and now he goes and he sits next to the cozy fire. You say all is good, right? No, look what he does next. Verse 17. And the rest of it, the rest of the wood, he makes into a god. His idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, deliver me. For you are my God. Why did he take the rest of the wood and make it into a god? I mean, his hunger was satisfied. His need for comfort was satisfied. Why did he take the rest of the wood and make it into a God and fall down and worship it? Because there is a deep thirst in the human heart for God that cannot be satisfied by anything in this created world. There's a deep thirst in your heart for God that cannot be satisfied by anything in this created world. That's why he made the idol. He was keenly aware of his thirst. He just went to the wrong place to quench it. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this way. He explains it this way. If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, ultimately, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And he goes on to say, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings, And on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. The reason that you struggle with idolatry is because you have this thirst deep in your soul that can only be satisfied by God, that cannot be satisfied by anything in this created world. Now, back to the question, why is idolatry so absurd? Well, we're beginning to answer that question. But let me remind you that when this passage talks about this man struggling with idolatry to to build this idol, it wasn't absurd in the culture around him. In fact, the perspective of the world around this man was that idolatry was normal. In fact, all the nations that surrounded God's people through the centuries made all kinds of gods they had all kinds of gods over different parts of life that would bless you in the different parts of life and your job was to satisfy or to sacrifice to these gods and when you sacrifice to a god you would hope that that god would deliver blessing in that area of life that's just how things worked so what this man was doing was actually very normal it wasn't absurd and when he makes this statue of wood, let, you know, you and I read this and we go, this is the, this is absurd. Like, I mean, wood that burned a fire for him, that made a meal for him, he now, he now carves this little statue and he falls down and worships to it. worships it. And you're going, what in the world? That's just crazy. Well, understand, and this is how idolatry worked in the Old Testament. He didn't believe that block of wood was a god. He just believed that that statue he made was a, was a channel or a portal or a pathway to the God that could satisfy his deep desires that the warm fire and the good meal didn't satisfy. It was just a portal. It was a pathway. So idolatry is the creation of man-made gods that don't exist. That's the whole point that God's making in this passage to his people. That idolatry is the making of these gods that actually don't exist. They're not real. That's what verse eight says. God says, is there a God besides me? There's no rock. I know not any. There's only one true living God. There are no other gods. And so idolatry is absurd because it is us making gods that don't exist they're 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 not real but we don't cease to make them so what's this absurdity look like i don't think anyone in here in the past week or even year or maybe in your lifetime i don't think anybody has carved a wooden statue and put it on your mantle in your den or a shelf in your den and fallen down on your knees and worshiped it and prayed to it. I don't think that's, that probably hasn't happened. But what this man did, we do the same thing. We do the exact same thing. It just looks very different. Looks very different. Remember, the wood was good for providing warmth. It was good for providing a meal for him. it just couldn't satisfy the deeper desires that he had. Although he used it to try to get those desires satisfied. So let me give you a couple examples. Your work, your career is good for providing food. It's good for providing shelter. It's even good for providing purpose in life. You do it for the Lord. But your work cannot satisfy your deep desire for worth as a human being. Nor can your work satisfy that deep desire for comfort or for pleasure. You can make a God of your work and ask it to deliver you. But it can't deliver because it's not God or your money. Your money is really good for providing food, for providing shelter, even for providing enjoyable experiences here and there. But your money cannot satisfy your deep desire for security. It can't satisfy your deep desire for comfort or for pleasure. You you can make the economy into a God and ask it to deliver you, but it can't. Because it's not a God. It's not God. There's one true living God. There's this great scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Silver Chair. And it's... uh, a scene where this young girl Jill is going into a strange forest in the land of Narnia with her friend and due to poor judgment she is finds herself all alone in this strange forest without her friend it's actually that alone is a great picture of what sin can do to us poor judgment and sin can leave us very isolated she found herself isolated she was thirsty And so she's going through this forest trying to find water and she finally comes upon a stream and she sees the stream and then she freezes because laying next to the stream is a lion. Now, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the lion, Aslan, is the Christ figure. That is the, the figure of Jesus Christ. But she freezes. She realizes, if I run, the lion's going to come after me. If I move closer to this stream where there's water that I desperately need, I'm going to walk right into its mouth. And so this conversation ensues. Are you not thirsty, said the lion? I am dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink. Drink said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered with only a look and a a very low growl. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that Without noticing that she had moved closer to the stream, came closer. She said, Do you eat girls? I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, taking a step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. That's a beautiful picture. of Your life, my life. We're thirsty. And we look for streams of water that don't exist. We refuse the stream, the only stream that exists, Jesus Christ. And we look for other streams and they don't exist. There are no other gods. There's no other God. There's one true living God. It's God the Father. In his son Jesus Christ. And the reason we're so wearied and tired and despairing of idolatry is because we go on this hunt for streams that will quench our thirst and we never find them because they don't exist. They're mirages that we keep trying to go after, we can never get to them. So, why does idolatry produce so much weariness? It, it's absurd, and I use that strong word because there are no other gods. There's no other God. There's one true living God. But even if you say, aha, now I see it. Idolatry is absurd. I will stop. No, because there's another couple characteristics of idolatry that we see in this passage. First, it's it's blinding. Idolatry itself is blinding. You, You can't see how absurd it is because you're blinded to it. Look at verse 19. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? You know, we hear that and go, yeah, that's absurd. But the the point that's being made here is we're blinded to the absurdity. Can't even see that it doesn't make any sense. Because there's a blinding effect to it. And even if we were to see how absurd it is, it's also enslaving. Idolatry is enslaving. Look at verse 20. He feeds on ashes a deluded or deceived heart. That word deluded means deceived. Heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? This person is holding the wooden statue he's he's made in his hand. He's holding his idol that was a product of his own strength and doesn't understand that this idol is actually holding him, that this idol is actually enslaving him. He cannot get free from it. He can't deliver himself from it. And the reason it's enslaving is that idols will promise deliverance, though they can never deliver it. The promise never goes away. I said it's like a mirage. The promise is out there, and so we chase it. The promise keeps just getting further and further away, and we chase it. And it never delivers. It never can deliver. Why? Because it's not God. But we keep chasing it. That's why it's enslaving, because the promise dangles out there like a carrot. Maybe this time I'll get it. Maybe this time I'll get the satisfaction I'm looking for. And we chase and we chase and we chase, and then it has us in its claws, so to speak. It's enslaving. You sacrifice more and more of your life in an attempt to get it to deliver what it's unable to deliver. So you work more and more hours. You work more and more hours. You give more of your life to this career in hopes that it will deliver the worth or the accolades you're looking for, and it never does. Or you give more and more of your money into these risky investments, whether it's in the stock market or maybe it's in gambling, to think, if if I can just give and give, it it will deliver on the promise, the comfortable lifestyle I'm looking for or the financial security I'm looking for. That's the reason why gambling is so addictive. That promise is there. Maybe this time, maybe this time. And you become enslaved. You give more and more, and it doesn't deliver. During World War II, there were natives that lived in the Southwest Pacific. And these natives in those Southwest Pacific areas and islands knew virtually nothing of modern technology or even modern people, advanced technology. And so when the Japanese and later the Allied soldiers came into their land, they were mesmerized. They were mesmerized by the Japanese and the Allied soldiers' uniforms. They had never seen anything like it before. They were mesmerized by their marching in perfect order. They were mesmerized by the construction of airstrips. They would make these airstrips for the planes to land on. They were mesmerized by it. They were mesmerized by the hand gestures that that these soldiers would use to bring in these incredible flying ships. And then they were really mesmerized by the the cargo of goods that would come out of these ships, these flying ships that were so amazing, that would bring healing medicine and, and just fascinating gifts. And And the Japanese and the Allied soldiers would would begin to share some of these gifts with the natives. Coca-Cola, canned food, clothes, basic medicine. When the war ended, all of these mysterious visitors left. And the natives were left incredibly disappointed. And so what they started to do is they started to mimic everything they saw. What these soldiers had done in hopes that if they could mimic exactly what these soldiers had done, they would get the same results. And so they did. They built a control tower out of rope and bamboo. They built a runway out of straw. They made clothes resembling the military uniforms. They carved and wore these simple wooden headsets. And they mimicked the landing hand gestures of the soldiers. And they did all this hoping that these heavenly aircraft would come in and deliver the goods, the fascinating goods, the healing medicine. Now, these actually became known as cargo cults. It was a real thing. And I don't know how long this lasted, whether these natives would do this for a whole generation to come whether it spanned generations, hoping that if if we will mimic what we saw them doing, that at some point, that heavenly being, whatever it was, will deliver the goods. And so they do it over and over and over. And yet it never delivered. Now, you and I look at that and the superstition behind that, and think, "Eh, we kind of make fun of it, right? That's just ridiculous. But when you turn to an idol, you're doing the same thing. You are sacrificing to this thing, whether it's work, career, relationship, substance, whatever it may be. You're giving and giving to it, waiting for it to deliver, it can't deliver because it's not God and it never will deliver. It will only leave you disappointed. You're expecting to receive something that work, sex, money, alcohol, relationship cannot deliver. You're expecting to receive something that it is unable to deliver. Now I hope you see why idolatry is so tiring and wearisome. Why it brings so much despair is because it can't deliver what it promises and yet it gets you into this, it enslaves you. So the question becomes, then how do we get out of it? How do you get free from idolatry? How do you get free from it? Look at verse 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. God's command, his, his first command, coming out of this idolatry as people are struggling with, his first command is to remember. You say, why is remembering so important to, being, to becoming free, to getting free from idolatry? Why is remembering so important? Let me, let me use the example of marriage to try to flesh this out. Everyone here knows that life is hard. Life is stressful. Life is difficult. There are demands in life that that just stack up on you like layers that can have an impact on the marriage relationship. So take work, for example. Work can become so demanding that it absolutely steals your affections, it steals your attention, such that it produces tension in the marriage relationship. Where maybe you're a lot of hours in the office, but maybe you actually do come home, you're physically there, but your spouse says, where are you, you're not here. You ever experienced that? Where are you? You're not here, you're somewhere else. Work can absolutely consume you. And the marriage relationship can get lost. Or take parenting, parenting's hard. Parenting's really hard. It requires diligence and intentionality and there's disappointment and kid pain. Anybody know about kid pain? It's hard. Or a kid's struggle. You see your kid's struggling? It is so hard and it can so demand from you and pull from you that it creates tension in the marriage because all of these layers, work, career, Those are two examples, stack it up. They layer up so high that the marriage gets lost. Now, what tends to happen when you get away as a married couple and you leave the work and the children behind for a short season? You get away and you remember who you are as a married couple you remember how funny your spouse is or you remember how thoughtful your spouse is or you remember how attractive your spouse is. When you you take the layers away, you get back and you remember, wow, now I remember why we took vows to each other. I remember why we made promises. God's people in Isaiah 44 were so buried underneath their idolatrous relationships. They were buried underneath layers of idolatry and God said, I need you to remember who I am, who you are, whose you are. Now, what do they need to remember? While they had been forming and fashioning idols, God reminds them, verse 21, I formed you. So they were busy forming their idols, and God says, remember, I formed you. When they had become enslaved to their idols, where they were functionally servants of their idols, God reminds them in verse 21, you are my servant. While they had desperately prayed to their idol, deliver me, God reminds them in verse 22, for I have redeemed you. I have delivered you. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. I want you to notice the progression here. The progression of of God's reminders and then also the tense. They're all past tense. God says, I formed you. I created you and because I formed you and created you, you belong to me. And I've redeemed you. Past tense, that word redeem means to purchase. I've purchased you out of slavery. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, return to me and I will redeem you. Doesn't say, return to me and I will redeem you or deliver you. It says, return to me for I already have redeemed you. And delivered you. It's past tense. Return to me is not an invitation, it's actually a command based on something that is true, which is that God has already redeemed. God's grace didn't wait for Israel's repentance. Nor does God's grace wait for your repentance or your returning. Grace precedes repentance. Grace precedes returning. Let me use the example of the the, slavery, because redemption is about being bought out of slavery. When is a slave free? Is the slave free when he or she walks off the slave block with her new master? Or is the slave free when the master purchases the slave? One precedes the other. The new master purchases the slave so that the slave's free and then goes and picks up the slave and takes the slave home with him or her. There's a transaction that's completed, the money is handed over, and at that point, the slave belongs to the new master. It might take that master a little bit of time to get to the slave block, to to go take the slave off the slave block, but the freedom was true and a reality as soon as the transaction was complete. God says here, return to me, come home with me, come home to me, I've already redeemed you. And in the context of Isaiah, he's talking about, I have already redeemed you out of slavery in Egypt by the blood of an animal. And that blood was put on the doorposts. That's the Passover. Of course, that blood was pointing forward to the blood of Jesus Christ. When God says to you, return to me, I've already purchased you. 2,000 years ago, when Jesus Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he purchased you out of slavery to idolatry. His blood was the payment. The transaction was complete. And so when we talk about conversion, of turning to Jesus Christ, Conversion is is realizing a truth about you, a truth that happened in the past. Conversion is realizing, I have been purchased out of this awful slavery to idolatry. I belong to the Lord. It's waking up to who you really are and whose you really are. There was a fascinating story, it was a couple years ago, uh, run by NPR, on this man named Jay Spates. He was an American who found out through DNA testing that he was of royal descent. Found out that he was actually of royal descent from this uh, West African country. And the irony of it all is that he was living in New Jersey in an apartment, didn't even own a car. And he found out, I'm of royal descent. So he got on a plane and he headed to this country in West Africa. When he got there, there was a, there was a festival happening, there were parades, there was singing, there was dancing. <laughs> and he realized that it was all being done for him. They were welcoming him home. And he went through this ceremony and he was he was crowned a prince. Now, I share that story because... He was living in New Jersey in an apartment, didn't own a car, working a job every day like a normal person. And suddenly realized who he was and where he came from. That's a picture of conversion. When you realize I've been created by God, I've already been redeemed by God. Jesus' blood has purchased me out of this slavery that I feel that I've never been able to put my hands on or been able to explain, but I see it now. I'm free. Now, some of you are here investigating Christianity and you've not come to that point yet. That's why we exist. And I would call you to Jesus because God's calling you. He's calling you to return, to return to him. For those of you that have been in Christ, trusting Christ for decades, it's no different. I mean, conversion in the sense of turning to Christ the first time is a one-time experience, but we turn to Christ every day because we get locked up in this idolatry that makes us weary and tired and despairing and frustrated. And the mirage that we keep running after, that promise just keeps being elusive and getting away from us. Call us the same. Return. You've already been redeemed, you've been purchased by God through the work of His Son Jesus. And the result is verse 23. You sing and you shout for joy. Weariness gives way to joy because you realize I've been purchased, I've been bought out of this slavery. I belong to God. I belong to Christ. And through the power of Christ, he begins to give you this new joy and this new freedom of who you are and who you belong to. God says, return to me. Return to me. For I've already redeemed you. Let's pray. Father, if we're honest, we are so tired of the idols that we've been chasing after. We're just weary. We're frustrated. Maybe even despairing. Father, we believe that those idols are not gods. There, there is no God besides you. And so there is no satisfaction that will be delivered ultimately from anything in this created world. Father, would you convince our hearts of that in whatever the, the blank is that we fill in, that we think would make us happy, if we had something, if we experienced something, if we achieved something, whatever that something is, Father, would you reveal that to us right now? That we would turn from it because we see it as empty. And we see the promises as empty. Father, would we turn to you, turn to your son, Jesus, knowing that he purchased us 2,000 years ago by his blood, that his blood was the payment, that was the transaction that freed us from idolatry, that we can live with joy and with freedom in your presence Trusting you to deliver the deep soul satisfaction that only you can deliver. And Father, would we sing now with hearts that long, long to be satisfied by you and by you alone. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.